Today we start a new sermon series uh, that I've been contemplating for a while and feeling like uh, this is where God would have us to study. First of all, I'd like to thank the Lord for some confirmation on this, uh, to be quite honest with you, because uh, this morning, if you were in Sunday school, you'll find out that, uh, that uh, Keith, on his own, felt led to really concentrate on our mortality. For the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at a subject that we probably don't really like to think about quite often, uh, one that we try to ignore, um, or at least sometimes do manage to ignore, and that is our mortality. Yes, this will be the feel-good sermon series of the century, uh, five weeks talking about death. Yay! I figured if uh, if Walmart can go ahead and get ready for Halloween this far ahead, we can go ahead and spend five weeks looking at mortality. To be quite honest with you, it was a difficult series to think about pre- uh, preaching. And, and I realized something in Sunday school this morning as Keith was teaching Sunday school on, on a very similar topic. He kept apologizing. He kept saying, this is heavy. I know this is heavy. And it is kind of an apologetic, uh, uh, kind of an uh, apologizing tone, you know, that this is, this is heavy stuff for us to, to look at death and to, and to say the word death probably a hundred thousand times over the next couple of weeks that that it becomes this burden on us and and i'm wondering and, and as he was saying that i was realizing that the thought of of preaching this series was kind of i felt like i should come and say i'm sorry for we're going to do this for five weeks you know i'm sorry to be such a downer you know debbie downer to do like this and and to talk about this sorry about that debbie <laughs> um but but then i realized why do we apologize for this why do we apologize in church for talking about the heavy stuff, about the reality of life uh, and about the truth of what's going to happen in life? Is it that church has become a place where people expect and want to just leave feeling good, being told how good they are and how good things are and how heaven is going to be and just uh, how much Jesus loves them and never deal with the realities of what we call life? And the truth of the matter is death is part of life. As Keith said, one of my lines he stole already this morning is that the mortality rate among humans is 100%. Uh, that everyone who is born will die. This is the truth that's laid out in Scripture. And mortality is really one of those things that we want to ignore, we try to ignore, and we try to get around in all aspects. I once have told you that God doesn't that everything God does is motivated by love. And the truth of the matter is, is that one of the events in life that we have the most difficult time reconciling this good act, this love of God, is when it comes to the death of another person. Although we may consider it a loving or gracious act when a person is extremely sick, is greatly infirmed, or is in some other way suffering greatly, we may say that, that this was a gracious act at that point. And it's only when we consider that that death is lesser than the evil that they're now uh, uh, continuing or currently dealing with that we as Christians start to have the hope of heaven begin to creep into our world. And we comfort each other by this that famous saying, well, at least they're in a better place now. Todd Agnew, a, a Christian singer, once shared some thoughts on one of his blogs uh, about this occasion. It was it was the death of his grandmother. 
He, she had had a debilitating disease. And Todd, as Todd stood in the family line in the funeral home, you know, greeting person after person, you know, offering condolences to the family, Christians, all well-meaning Christians would, would share that sentiment saying, you know, at least now, Todd, she's in a better place. As if somehow heaven is only better if you're sick on earth. And he said, he realized, he came to, to ponder that heaven is not just better than being sick on earth. It could have been her wedding day and she could have been in the height of health and heaven would have still been a better place. It will much better place than our best day on earth. And that we don't think about that very often, the reality of that. In 2004, 2005, I was in seminary. And one of my professors, John Hammett, a, a person I consider a brilliant theologian and an amazingly humble man, a Ph.D. in theology. And at his local church, he taught the sixth and seventh grade boys. That's just kind of the man he was. Uh, uh, Don Denny and myself have often talked about him and, and how we admire this man's intellect. Well, back at that time... Randy Alcorn had just written the book Heaven. And Dr. Hammett said it was one of the best theological books written in the last decade. That in his writing of this book, he had written, he had read almost everything written on the subject of heaven. And it takes a biblical look of what it is, what the eternal state is. Over the years, I have taught a number of classes with this as my source material and encouraged numerous other people to read it. The feedback I've received was almost unanimous in that it helped people think about heaven better. That it encouraged them greatly. It comforted them when they thought of their loved ones who had died and had awoken a new anticipation, even longing to be in heaven. Recently, I shared, an, I shared this book with another person, one of our own congregation. And again, very similar reactions. So I've been wanting to, for some time, to bring some of the information from this book to us in a sermon format. Because being able to deal with our mortality may be one of the most defining characteristics of a Jesus follower. How we deal with mortality and our ability to do that because we're a Jesus follower is sets us apart from the rest of the world. It makes a big difference. It's Facing our mortality that the hope of the gospel really gains traction. And so this will be some of the things we consider. Consider some of these thoughts from the intro to this book. The Roman catacombs, where bodies of many martyred Christians were buried, contain tombs with inscriptions such as these. In Christ, Alexander is not dead, but lives. One who lives with God. He was taken up to his eternal home. These inscriptions are written throughout the catacombs where our brothers and sisters who were martyred are laid. It's these epitaphs, these ideas that they are not dead, but they are at home. That, that the Christians were laying these martyrs down with the thoughts that there was something beyond just death. One historian writes, pictures on the catacomb walls portray heaven with beautiful landscapes, children playing, and people feasting at banquets. If I was to ask you today to draw a picture of heaven, what would it look like? Would you draw pictures of clouds, harps, and, and togas? Or, or do you have a more well-rounded idea of what the eternal state will be like? 
Hopefully by the end of this series, series, we will think about heaven a little bit differently, a little bit deeper, and maybe even with longing. So well, another historian writes, in A.D. 125, a Greek named uh, Aristot, Aristides, excuse me, I can't pronounce my Greek, wrote to a friendly wrote to a friend about Christianity explaining why this new religion was so successful if any religious man among the christians passes from this world they rejoice and offer thanks to god they escort his body with songs and thanksgiving as if he were setting out from one place to another nearby my question is why did our first century brothers and sisters seem to have seem to have some type of fervor and excitement and possibly fixation on heaven. Why did they celebrate the death of their friends in such a way? And I guess my question is, do we do the same? Well, I have three goals from this series that I'd I'd like to accomplish, and I think they're biblical goals that maybe answer why those first century uh, Christians reacted the way they did when their friends died, why they wrote these encouraging epitaphs, why they drew pictures uh, of this beautiful landscape called heaven and why they celebrated, truly celebrated their home going. Well, the first goal I have is to at least get an anticipation built within us for heaven. See, this is what Paul told the Colossians. Uh, Therefore, since you have been raised with Christ, those of you who have been born again, strive for things above. Christ, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. To, to have an anticipation, a longing, even a focus on heaven, your eternal state. So I want to hopefully, by looking at this series, at least and get, grow an anticipation for heaven. Second biblical goal is to realize that this is part of my duty. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he said, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. He he told them it's important that we talk about this. He's writing the Thessalonians. I don't want you to not address the subject of death. I don't want you to be uninformed about what happens to your brothers and sisters when he calls it fall asleep. It's a euphemism for death, but it may be more accurate than, than we think about He says it is important for us to address these issues and to inform ourselves about these realities. And so I want us to at least take time to say we have dealt with the subject. We have looked death in the eye as Christians. And third goal is that these people apparently were unafraid. That death wasn't the great fear that they had. Therefore, since the children have... Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. It's interesting that that people, if we were to ask How they approach death, fear would be the main thing. And the hope of our faith, the the hope of the gospel, the truth of the gospel is supposed to relieve us from this fear. I think if we were able to really get down to the intentions of people's hearts, if we could see really what motivates them, that much of the success, 
much of the addictions in the world, much of the way people cope with things in the world is ultimately a way of dealing with this fear. They don't want to to deal with the reality that faces them. And so they try to numb themselves or distract themselves or some other way deal with this reality by not looking it in the face because they are afraid. And so if we can accomplish these three things, relieve ourselves of fear, instruct ourselves about the reality, and then grow in anticipation for heaven, then we will be successful. I want to read you another wrong passage when it comes to the idea of heaven we must realize that that this that death is a necessity for us to to get there this is from first corinthians 15 i'm going to read verses 50 through 57 i have verse 53 highlighted for you now i say this brethren that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of god nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable behold i tell you a mystery We will not all sleep, but we will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on the immortality, then will come the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death Where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The fact of the matter is that death is a necessity, is necessary for change. That that there is, we talked the other week about our souls and our bodies and there are heavenly bodies. And that there is a change that we will go into to go into heaven, that somehow there's a change that's going to happen within us to allow us to have access to God. And death is part of that process for us, for us to be resurrected and reborn. And so that I think it is necessary for us to deal with the subject of our mortality. Now, the good news is that was all the intro for the series. The bad news is the sermon starts now. So today I want to look at one idea when it comes to our mortality that I feel like it's necessary for us to look at. And that's the idea of the grace of death. We don't often think of death as a gracious act, but I hope today for us to look at where death began and see it as a gracious act. And so for us to deal with that, let's turn to where it began, to the beginning of death. Where did it start? Where did it begin at? Well, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3. It's usually when you're talking about beginnings, you turn to Genesis. I'll catch you up with the story. Chapter 3, verse 22 is where we're going to start reading that today. God has created everything. He's made the garden. He's put Adam and Eve in the garden. They've been naming the animals. There's a temptation. The tempter comes and he tricks them. Uh, Eve takes a bite. She gives to her husbands with her. They hear God hiding in the coming into the garden. They hide themselves from him. He finds them there, wrapped themselves in fig leaves, hiding and cowering from God. He pronounces what we call the curse, all the results, the consequences of this sin. Um, he makes clothes for them. And then finally, the last scene of the creation narrative. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. 
And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out at the east of the garden of Eden. He stationed the cherubim with a flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So we, this is a classic art thing. If you are an art uh, person, much of the Renaissance, much of the classic art is uh, pictures like this called the expulsion from the garden. It deals with the idea of Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden. And what I want us to see is the why God did this. This is where death enters into humanity. This is where it enters into the picture of history. And God says, they are like us. They know what is right and what is wrong. They have this ability to choose right and wrong. And sin has entered into their life. And he says, if I leave them here in the garden, they will continue to eat of another tree. The tree of life. This tree apparently had properties or ability to sustain human life forever. It's interesting. You should probably note this tree because you won't see this tree mentioned often in Scripture until... Later on, really, our last sermon will come back to this tree when we talk about this tree. But he wants them not to be able to eat of this. So he, he bars them. He kicks them out of the Garden of Eden so that they can't partake of this particular tree. And he sets this cherubim, this, this, this uh, angelic figure, this heavenly creature to guard so that they won't be able to have access to the tree of life. And thus, the process of dying begins for Adam and Eve. Here's another picture. I like this one. Beautiful. You can't even hardly see Adam and Eve in this. They're two little figures in the foreground being kicked out. And, and it's the artist rendition of the beautiful light place that, that Eden was. And now being barred from that place of life, they enter the dark and, and kind of world of destruction where hurricanes come and cause all kind of chaos and death and, and these elements being outside of God's presence. This is the beginning where death started. This is a process. It starts for Adam and Eve. They now can't eat of this tree of life, and so they start to die. Interestingly enough, it takes Adam 930 years before he actually dies from this point. And he lives 930 years after being denied. It took a while for him to actually get there. It's interesting as we watch the biblical timeline develop, uh, develop and throughout the scriptures that as time goes on, sin increases. And as sin increases, lifespans decrease. As there's more and more sin in the world, people live less and less and less and less throughout the story of the scriptures. It would be interesting today. I don't know if I could ever find this out, but what our lifespan today would be if not for the grace of God as he displays it through the medical sciences. Imagine if God hadn't graced someone to figure out penicillin or how to vaccinate for polio or any of the other vaccinations that we have. If we were, if we were just left to deal with the diseases and the death of this world without medical intervention at all, what would our lifespan be now? But thank the Lord he's been gracious to, to give people that ability and that we can fight back and gain 70 to 90 some years now. Just some thoughts I have on death. Just some pastoral thoughts from this scripture. When I look at this, this end of the creation story, 
Number one, the human body is a miraculous testimony to our Creator. When we look at creation, when we look at our bodies and how they function, how they, how they long to keep going on, how they repair themselves, how it all works from how you can take a breath in and somehow in your lungs, oxygen gets moved over from you breathing in your lungs to moving over into your bloodstream to being carried throughout your body so that your body can live. It is just an amazing thing. Take time to just consider the most small part of your body and how amazingly intricate it is. I mean, how many doctors are there that specialize in every part of the body? You have, you know, you have eye specialists, you have ear, nose, throat specialists, you have cardiologists who specialize on the heart, you have internalists, you have people who specialize in the bones, that every part of our body can become a specialization that, that takes deep many years to study and to grasp that one little part of this amazing thing we call life. And humanity. And so as we look at each other, it is a miraculous testimony to our Creator. Also, I think it's important for us to realize when we look at our body, humans were made to live forever. That the design for our body was a never ending machine, one that could repair itself. I mean, with just enough water and food, it should just keep right on going. That God had intended when He made us for us to live forever. This was the design. And it's interesting. It, it's interesting because I had the, the opportunity and even the privilege to sit with people in these last stages of life quite often. How the body will fight and fight and fight and fight to keep going. When it makes no human sense to us, at least, why are they still here? How can they take one more breath? You know, it, it's an amazing thing. And I'm just confirmed over and over that the body is not made to die. God made it to live. And it tries to do what its creator made it to do, even when it's not reasonable anymore. That leads me to another thought I have. Is that there's no such thing as a natural death. That death is not naturally part of the world God created. It is part of the fallen world in which we live in, but it was not originally part of the creation. And so there's no such really thing as a natural death. Because the body was created to live forever, it's unnatural for it to die. And so something unnatural needs to happen, what we call disease or sickness. Something has to give. Something breaks down. Something doesn't do what it was supposed to do. And that's unnatural for the body because the body was supposed to made for, to live forever. And so we have this longing, even made within our creation, within ourselves, to want and strive to live forever. And then the last thing is that death reveals a more serious problem within us. It's not so much the physical problems we have. It's not the breakdown within our body that's the real problem. Death is really symptoms of a far more serious problem than death. So let me ask you this question. Romans chapter 5, 2 points us out to what that problem is. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men have sinned. 
because we've all sinned. The, the, the real evidence, the real problem is sin. That's the real unnatural thing that's going on within our body. And death is a symptom of our sin. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. And so what death reveals to us is the presence of sin within humanity. That's the real unnatural thing that is plaguing us. And it has led us to a place of death. So let me ask you, what is worse than death itself? Well, I think there's another death that's at least mentioned or thought about here in Genesis chapter 3. We're focused quite often on physical death. And yes, it took Adam 930 years before he physically died. But there was another death that occurred instantaneously when he and Eve sinned. And it's the thing that's worse than actual death. We call it spiritual death. Or another way of saying it is separation from God. That's the real bad thing. That's the, that's the thing that is worse than death itself. Because before Adam would physically die, he was already spiritually dead. He had been separated from God. That he had made, he had been created for to be with God. That God spent time with them in the garden. And now he's being kicked out of the garden. Not just from the tree of eternal life. But from God's presence himself. That this relationship that God had intended was now severed. And this is what we call spiritual death. And it is the thing to really fear itself. Not death itself. So let me kind of help us understand that. Because... I want to talk a moment about the cherubim revealed in this story. Cherubim Boyce points out in his commentary that points out that these creatures are always associated with God's presence. The only time we read about the cherubim without scripture is always in the place where God is. They're not like, he says, they're not like regular, normal angels who, who do God's bidding, who go and deliver messages, who, who do all, who show themselves in different ways. They're not, they're the regular angels, but these, these cherubim are, are special heavenly creatures and they're always seen in the presence of God. They're never re- referenced anywhere else that God is not at. And so if there's a cherub in the garden, it means God's in the garden. And so the cherub, when he kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, not only does he kick them, take them from the tree of life, they're not in God's presence anymore. They're separated from God. Maybe one of the, here's a picture of a cherub, right? See one of those with a flaming sword, I bet you'll run. Maybe. The, the scriptures actually teach these as much more fierce creatures than what we tend to think of as cherubs. That they're these angelic creatures of heaven that sit around the throne in Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6 that call out holy, holy, holy. They're the, the marvelous creatures that Ezekiel describes in, in his vision of heaven that are there among God's throne. The place that they're most referenced in scripture have to do with the Ark of the Covenant. That on the, what, over the covering of the Ark of the Covenant, that there were supposed to be these two cherubim there. Uh, this was called the mercy seat. This is what it says in Exodus chapter, uh, 25 verse 22. There I will meet you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that, uh, that, uh, that are on the Ark of the Testimony. I will speak with you that all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. That it's there above the cherubim. When God made the tabernacle, this is where I'm going to be here 
surrounded by the cherubim. This is where I'll meet you. And if you remember your Old Testament history, that this was stored in the holy place, the holy of holies. And only once a year would the high priest come into the presence of God there above the cherubim. That these guys are those who tell us where God is at. That they're always there in His presence. Those who are seen in Ezekiel and Isaiah. Now, I don't want to get off on the tangent of angelology right now and talk about all those, those different kinds of angels in the ranks that people get off on into. The point I'm trying to make is man was created to be with God. He is the height of, their, of God's creation. And he was made in order to commune with God forever. And now, because of sin, he's separated from God. Being barred from the tree of life was bad enough. But being barred from the reason they were created, communion with God, that is horrible. That is worse than death itself. Luke refers to this. Uh, in Luke chapter 12, verse 5, it says, But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who has, after, after he is killed, has the authority to cast you into hell, the place of separation from God. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Revelation twenty fourteen fifteen 15 calls, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is ultimate separation from God for eternity. This is the second death. And this is worse than physical death. This is the great unnatural thing that haunts us. But there's good news about death. Something miraculous happens on that day at the same time. As Adam and Eve begin their dying process, as man is separated from God and His presence, as death begins... Something good happens at that moment too. Something else starts right then. Redemption begins then too. That's when God's ultimate plan starts to come into focus. There's two giant clues in Genesis chapter 3 about what God has planned. And he shows these before he kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. The first one is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And it's the promise that God makes to Satan himself, the tempter. The one who has the power of the fear of death. Remember from our earlier Hebrews passage. This is what God promises Satan. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Most theologians call this the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. It's the first hint of somebody to come and set things right. And so before God kicks them out of the, out of the Garden of Eden, He says, I got a plan to make things right. One is coming who will be bruised on the hill. We see that as a reference to the Jesus' crucifixion, a three-day bruise, but ultimately will be crushed on their own head that's the bible tells us that god is going to crush satan under his foot that he's going to crush his head under 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 jesus's feet that ultimately there's this promise that somebody's coming they call him this is the beginning of the word messiah the promised one the anointed one the christ to come and deal with this problem then he paints a picture 
And the picture, I think, is the most beautiful. It's, it's one little tiny verse in Genesis chapter 3 that I think we may sometimes read by too quickly. Then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and his wife, and he clothed them. Before he kicked them out, he said, here you are in your sinful state. You're covering yourself with leaves. You're trying to cover your sin and hide your nakedness before me. And you can't do it right. And so he, God, kills an animal and makes garments. It's a picture that I'm going to take care. I'm going to cover your sin. Later on, Jesus will be talking about clothe yourself with Christ. Put on these white garments of Christ. Have your, have your sin washed white as snow. That, that there is a covering coming. It's a picture of one to come and cover our sin once and for all. And so Jesus, so God is telling, he's promising and he's showing a picture to us that before death comes, I've got a plan to take care of this. The fact of the matter is that death will ultimately be the back door into paradise. As, as Adam and Eve are escorted out the front gate, it's like God says, now swing around to the, outside, to the other side because there's a door for you to get back in. And it is through death that we get back in to heaven. It's this picture. Use the back door. No exceptions. And so while God was escorting humans out the front, He's planning a way to open up so we can have access again. Here's what Jesus said. I'm going to read a number of verses. I'm going to highlight two for you to see. The first one is John chapter 10, verse 9. Jesus says, I am the door. I'm the way back in. If anyone enters, enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I'm the door. I'm the way back in from where you've been barred. John 10, 7, same chapter. He says, he, he said again, truly, truly, I am the gate for the sheep. John chapter 14, verse 6 says, Jesus answered, I am the way. The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The first name for Christianity was the way. People of the way. Where, where, where are we going? We're going back to Eden. We're going back to heaven. We're on our way back home. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By His death. By His death. The door has been opened for us to have access to God. Ephesians 2.8, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father, so that we no longer strengthen, we're no longer strangers or aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints. You're citizens with the saints. Well, where do the saints live? They live in heaven. You're fellow citizens. Well, how did you get access? Through Jesus. And you are of God's household. Finally, one more I'll highlight for you to see. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place. It's a reference to that holy of holies again. Where the Ark of the Covenant sat. Where the cherubim were there seated over the mercy seat. And where God said, I will meet you here. We have confidence to enter the holy place. By the blood of Jesus, by his death, we have confidence to go into the holy of holies. 
Yes, heaven itself. By a new and living way, which was inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, through his death. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The end, the good news of death is the door is open. The way has been made for us to enter back in to the garden, to go back to heaven. Now, the fact of the matter is it's necessary that we be changed. It's necessary that we deal with death. Mortality, that this, it, that this mortal must put on immortality to go to this place. And as you think about that, As you consider the truth that I'm telling you today, that everyone in this room, if God tarries, will face their mortality at some point. Will you be barred from the garden? Or will you go through the way back into the garden? The truth of the matter is it's heavy, sure. But it's the most important question you will ever address. Will you enter the open door? If you would, if today would be the day that you say, I want to know, I want to make sure that I'm a fellow citizen of heaven. Let's talk about that.